Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for uh, the praise and worship that we've already been able to give to you. And, and Lord, we know your word says that you inhabit the praises of your people. And your spirit is here today. Your spirit is here among us. And as we praise you and thank you and worship you, we can feel you ministering to us and, and re rejuvenating us and, and, and re-energizing us. And Lord, I pray that if there's anything that we came in here with today, whether it be a, a sin or a fear or an anxiety, Lord, I pray that we lay them all down at your feet, that we may be undistracted uh, and that we may be one with you and that we may... Uh, hear what you want us to hear and not just leave it in our heads but that it would change our hearts change our lives and we'd go out from this place different people and we pray all these things in jesus name amen for decades man-made disasters have rocked the earth causing destruction health issues and fatalities from the History Channel, towards the end of 1952, the city of London, England, experienced a cold snap that forced the city's inhabitants to use an abnormal amount of coal all at the same time. As soot flowed from thousands of chimneys, it mixed with emissions from factories and power plants and produced a horrible and suffocating fog that gripped the city for five days. This was due to a high-pressure system that contained no wind and simply would not move. Conditions were so bad that people just abandoned their cars on the streets. Movie theaters sat empty because the fog filled the theaters and was so thick no one could see the screens. And people even accidentally walked into and fell into the Thames River. Worst of all, 4,000 people died from respiratory issues just within those first few days the fog permeated the city, with another 8,000 developing respiratory issues following that. Also in the early 1950s, the inhabitants of a small coastal city in Japan named Minamata started noticing very strange phenomena taking place. Cats were suddenly foaming at the mouth, dancing around uncontrollably and throwing themselves into the sea. Birds were nosediving and crashing into the ground. And fish were unexplainably dying. Soon after, humans started experiencing the symptoms of what would become known as Minamata disease. They would start unexplainably slurring their speech, stumbling around, and being unable to do the simplest of tasks like buttoning buttons. This went on for years until the very end of that decade when it was discovered that a chemical company named the Chizo Corporation, which was Minamata's biggest employer, ironically, was dumping large amounts of mercury into the sea, giving the sea creatures, along with anyone else eating those sea creatures, horrible mercury poisoning. Unbelievably, facing no punishment, the Chizo Corporation will go on to continue dumping these large amounts of mercury into Minamata's part of the sea for another 10 years until 1968, causing another 2,000 deaths as well as birth defects, paralysis, and other terrible health issues. You might be thinking, man, why did you start the message? Why did you have to go and start things out with those stories? 
I already felt not that great coming in this morning. And then you, you hit me with that. To set up the context of our passage this morning. This is why I went all through, through all this. You'll notice the, the title here. That just as physical toxic material can spill over into the natural environment and cause great human destruction, spiritual toxic material can spill over from the world into the church and cause great human destruction. This is what Paul has to address next in this letter to the Corinthian church. We had another couple of successful service Sundays the past couple of Sundays, and I want to thank everyone who signed up to help fill the needs of our outreach and our discipleship ministries and strengthen those in many ways. Shameless plug, if you haven't filled out your sign-up sheet yet, do so. Get it back to me as soon as you can, uh, or any, any following Sunday. So this morning, we're jumping back into our 1 Corinthians series, and we're picking up in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17. So if you didn't bring your Bible with you, please, or if you brought your Bible with you, please turn to 1 Corinthians 11. If you didn't, please uh, take one out of the pew in front of you, and please also turn there. The first point that we're going to have this morning is the standard spillover, the, the general spillover, everything that Paul has been talking about up to this point. If you remember from past messages in this current series, if there was one term to describe the Corinthian church and what most, if not all, of their struggles originated from, it was self-centered arrogance. They could slap a name tag on and it said self-centered arrogance on it. Self-serving pride fueled most of the problems in this church. And as we've worked our way through this letter, we've seen Paul addressing one tough situational problem after another. He started out rebuking those in the church who were instigating the creation of these mini camps within the congregation, divided up between which church leader each group admired the most and was the most loyal to, whether it be Paul or Apollos, perhaps even Peter, and then those who cast off any influence of any preacher and said, I'm not going to listen to anyone but Jesus. What was the solution to that issue? The solution to most problems, and that was humility. Paul spent the next three chapters, from chapters 2 through 4, explaining how these factions were nothing but nonsense. Because any human minister, himself included, as Paul was saying, was nothing. God was the one who bought and paid for our salvation. It was God who called each of us to faith in Him. <coughs> Excuse me. And it's God who works a spiritual growth in us. However, at the same time, the human minister's job is important in teaching and discipleship, and he will be rewarded by Jesus himself for a job done in a selfless, loving, and biblically accurate way. Next, Paul spent three entire chapters from chapters 5 through 7 rebuking and teaching against any form of sexual immorality, which is any sexual relationship outside of a marriage relationship between one man and one woman. Within those chapters, he also taught on the gift of sex within marriage and how a husband and wife must enjoy that gift to the fullest. One practical reason, this isn't the only reason, but one practical reason is to keep the enemy from getting in and messing around at all. 
from chapters 8 through the verse just before this, chapter 11, verse 16, Paul had to address a couple of problems the Corinthians were having with their Christian liberty. The first one had to do with publicly partaking in that which would harm the spiritual growth of their brothers and sisters who came out of different spiritual backgrounds. The second one had to do with shirking off God's established gender roles at the time of humanity's creation, and the Corinthians had to instead embrace and fully live out the roles created for men and women. That's what brings us to this morning's passage. If you missed any of those previous and more in-depth messages in 1 Corinthians, which I just very, very, very briefly touched on here, we're They're all up on our website, our Facebook page, and podcast platforms. But what I want us to see already here in this very, very, very summarized version of 1 Corinthians so far is that basically everything Paul has already had to address and correct has already had a direct connection with toxic spillover from the world into the church. The divisions over human minister loyalties was spillover from the cultural practice of being staunchly loyal to any given traveling philosopher, specifically personally system of philosophy. You had the Epicureans who were loyal to Epicurus and adhered to Epicurus's philosophy. The Stoics who were loyal to Zeno and adhered to his philosophy and so on and so forth. The Corinthians took that world practice and assimilated it into their human ministers. The sexually immoral practices were spillover from the world around them. So much was it toxic spillover that Paul denounced an extremely immoral practice one of the Corinthian church members was actively engaged in as something not even the pagan Gentiles would do. It was so bad. It was so disgusting even for them. But any sexual immorality in the church is toxic spillover from the, world, from the way the world sees sex and marriage. God sees it entirely differently and expects his children to see it entirely differently and to live it out entirely differently from the way the world sees things. Likewise, the problems with the exercise of Christian liberty was selfish spillover from the culture around the Corinthians. So when we get to our passage this morning and the specific problem Paul has to correct, it should be no surprise to us then that it has, once again, to do with toxic spillover from the world into the church. So that's the standard spillover, the general spillover of everything that Paul has been having to address up to this point. And secondly, we're going to talk about the specific spillover of our passage this morning. This specific spillover had perhaps the greatest impact on the everyday gathering of the church, like what we're doing right now. The life of its worship and the witness of it to the surrounding community. So, again, please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to start in verse 17. And Paul says, But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together for the not for the better, but for the worse. Well, that's not something you want someone to be observing about your church worship service, is it? 
Hey, I showed up, and when you guys gather for worship, it's actually for the worst of the church family. Any visitors who show up, and it's witness to the community. You're making everything worse for the cause of Christ every time you just gather for worship. I know that's not something I want to be said about our church, right? You make everything worse every time you gather together for worship. That is an incredibly powerful statement to make, isn't it? You may think everything's great, but you're actually making everything worse for the cause of Christ. I would not want to be known as the first community church of making everything worse, right? Have that up on your church sign. You're giving out pamphlets to everybody in the neighborhood. Hey, come out, check out our church service. We're the church that makes everything worse. <laughs> Why is this? Why did Paul feel the need to express this observation about the Corinthian church so pointedly? He does not pull any punches. This is why, verses 18 through 19. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Now we've already covered one source of division in the Corinthian church, and that was divisions according to staunch loyalty to, human, to different human ministers. The division that Paul describes here, though, in these verses, 18 and 19, is something entirely different and a lot more nefarious. You see, when the early church first started to gather together from the day of Pentecost onward, each local church in a certain community would meet in the house of one of the more well-to-do congregants of that church. In fact, according to one biblical scholar, the church met like this for the first 300 years of the church's existence. The positive aspect of this is, as explained by one biblical scholar, and I quote, was, was be, between persecution and the need for funds to free slaves, feed the poor, and support missionaries, the churches had no money left over for buildings anyway. That's a pretty powerful statement. That's a pretty potent description of where the early churches focus was on in the first few hundred years. I am not downplaying all the many ways a special building given by God for ministry and worship can be used for God's kingdom, especially in this time period and culture, but it does put everything back into the right perspective for a ministry focus, doesn't it? Now, because the early church, which included the church in Corinth, met in a more wealthy person's house, there was also the real risk of worldly toxic spillover to happen. And you'll see what I mean. This is a diagram of what a first century Greco-Roman house probably looked like uh, from the excavations of similar houses in the Roman Empire. And if I could take a one-minute bunny trail here, this is just something pretty cool. You see this uh, pool down here? And this hole in the roof up here, it's not because they forgot to finish the roof there. There was a real purpose to this. You see, rain would come down from the, from the way this is designed into this hole, fall down into this area right here. 
And this, this area was constructed of either stones with gaps in between or constructed of porous rock. Rainwater would come down through this hole you see there, fall to this area, and get filtered through to a private cistern underground. You could then lower buckets through holes that would be around the perimeter of this area here into that cistern and have a private supply of drinking water all the time if it rained enough. You'd have a private supply of drinking water filtered through these layers of rock. That's pretty cool, huh? Right inside your house. All right. Getting back to our conversation. If you look at this diagram, we see two other rooms. Now, these number nine rooms, these are bedrooms. You can kind of get an idea of here, of what we got going on here. This was a garden in the back of the house. Uh, these two were pretty creepy rooms in that you had death masks of family members in these rooms. Uh, and uh, this is where pretty much the office from where you ran the house was. This is the entryway. I forget what these two rooms are. But these two rooms I want to focus on in particular. See, number three covers this whole area right here. This was known as the atrium or the foyer of, of the, we have a main foyer. This is a, a foyer for the whole house here. And then number seven over here, this is called the triclinium. And that was basically their dining room. So you have the foyer and you have a dining room. So you'd have two rooms, a smaller dining room called the triclinium that could only seat nine people. And then you had this bigger room, the atrium, that could seat up to 40 people and it contained couches so you could fit a lot more people in that main room. But what I want you to see here is if you are in this main room, there's a doorway here, right? You can see what's going on in the dining room, right? That's important. All right. Here's the cultural spillover that was happening. Apparently, what was going on was that the wealthy congregant who owned this house and supplied the food for this meal was handpicking the other socially high congregants and inviting them to sit in the dining room, the special dining room, and relegated everyone else to the atrium, most likely the lower socioeconomic people, to the atrium. And what made matters worse was that the wealthy homeowner was serving the better portions of the meal to those in the dining room while pawning off the rest to the lower class congregants in the atrium. That is a recipe for disaster, isn't it? especially when it comes to church unity. No wonder Paul used such strong words towards what was going on here and outright said that their church service gathering was for the worse. Every time you gather, you're making everything worse. As Paul says in verse 19, this division during a regular church gathering was showcasing certain individuals as being approved as good enough to be in the dining room, while the rest of the church was doubtlessly disapproved as being not good enough. What a blow to the unifying power of the gospel, right? What a blow to the truth that God plays no favorites with his children. What a blow to the power of being a part of the family of God. Jesus was the one who paid the price for that admittance, so why were mere humans thinking they had anything to add to that? Paul says next in verse 20, Therefore, when you meet together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. In other words, Paul is saying, whatever you're doing, you're not celebrating the Lord's Supper, that's for sure. 
Whatever you're doing, it's not celebrating the Lord's Supper. Because what were they doing? Verses 21 through 22. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. The Lord's Supper, or what we celebrate as communion, originally was rooted in what meal? You can yell it out. The Last Supper, or communion, was originally rooted in what meal? The Passover. Very good. Okay. Jesus took some of the elements of that Passover and used them to commemorate the institution of the New Covenant. That covenant we are now under between God and us through the death and resurrection of Jesus. The elements of the bread and the wine were to be a time of remembrance of Jesus' sacrifice, resurrection, and his imminent return for us. It's to be a time of observance and in that way celebration of what Jesus has done for us in reconciling us to God. Some churches observe this event referred to as the Lord's Supper or the Lord's Table or Communion or the Mass every Sunday, some every day. We observe it the first Sunday of, of every month because we believe the Bible teaches that its observance is not integral to our salvation, but it is a, 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 th a commandment that we must obey. That's found in faith in Jesus alone. Salvation is found in faith in Jesus alone, not in the Mass, not in the elements of communion. Communion connects us, though, spiritually to the Trinitarian Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is a sacred observance that we must not take lightly and only partake in if we have accepted Jesus as our Savior and our King and we've asked Him for forgiveness of our sins. Now, Paul will go on and explain communion's spiritual importance to our congregational worship in, every, in the very next section of verses, but for now we need to see the sacredness and the honorable observance of it to remember what Jesus has done, is doing, and will do, and our spiritual connection to God through it. But what the Corinthians had done with the observance of communion was to spill over the pagan concept of celebratory meals and dedication to the Roman deities into the Lord's Supper. We spent a good deal of time for at least a month. You might have gotten sick of me talking about it. At least a month discussing Paul's rebuke to the Corinthian Christians joining in with these pagan celebrations. And if that wasn't bad enough, the Corinthian church had taken the elements of the raucous, riotous, drunken, gluttonous meals in celebration of the pagan deities and applied them to the sacred observance of the Lord's table. No wonder Paul was so irate about this. So not only did you have the obvious desecration of the observance of communion itself, but look at what it was doing to the congregation themselves. 
when they were supposed to be gathering for worship of Christ and observance of his supper, born out of the Passover meal, some were gorging themselves before everyone else could get some food, probably some of those higher higher class people. Some were being overlooked and not getting anything to eat and going hungry, probably those of the lower class. And some were completely missing the entire point of what the Lord's Supper was supposed to be and getting plastered with booze. That was not at all how a church should behave at any kind of church meal. Could you imagine that happening downstairs during our potluck? This is not at all how a church should behave in any kind of church meal, much less gathering together to observe communion. I get a kick out of Paul's exclamation towards this behavior. The very first word of verse 22. What? Are you kidding me? What is wrong with you? This is just ludicrous. This is insane what you're doing. Paul goes on to say in verse 22, what am I supposed to do with this? Like he walks in on this. What am I supposed to do with this? You want me to praise you for this? Absolutely not. This is just insane. What is going on here? Like I mentioned, Paul will explain how the Corinthians needed to see communion and what it was all about in the very next section of verses. And we will see how we are to view communion and what it's all about. We'll get into all that next week. For now, I want us to see the underlying toxic spillover that was tearing the church apart every time it gathered together. So we talked about the standard spillover. We talked about the specific spillover in the Corinthian church. And now we're talking about the synonymous spillover that continues even today, unfortunately. That toxic spillover from the world is this. Division in the church for any racial, socioeconomic, or cultural reasons. The Bible is very clear about this. The church is one. His blood is the only thing that bought us. That is our only ticket. Jesus died for everyone and offers salvation to anyone with no connection to race or culture whatsoever. We are all sinners, and if we have accepted Jesus' gift of forgiveness and salvation, one for us on the cross, we are all brothers and sisters. Nothing will separate us because we are bound together by the blood of Jesus and the bond of the Holy Spirit. Stand up for your brothers and sisters in unjust situations. As Paul notes elsewhere, we are one body, baptized into one baptism, all having the same one Holy Spirit and believing in the same one gospel. We serve one God, only have Him to thank for His grace that He pours out on us without discrimination and love one another because He first loved us. There is no place for, nor must there be any socioeconomic division in the church. Those who have abundant material possessions, praise God for them and remember that they are not actually yours. Remember that. They're not yours to hoard. They're not yours to, to have a lavish lifestyle with. God has given them to you to be generous with them. 
They have been given to you to be generous back to God through furthering his work with the church, and they have been given to you to be generous with your spiritual family, especially those in need. They have been given to you to further the work of the gospel around the world. They have been given to you to support organizations like Zara House and other people who are helping those in terrible, horrible, unjust, demeaning situations. Any worldly status you may happen to have is not for your own agenda. It's for God's agenda. It's to be used to further the gospel, stand up and speak for the voiceless, and sustain God's work. One more point with that. If it weren't for God's reasons, you want to know something? If it weren't for God's reasons, you wouldn't have what you have. So there is no place for looking down on anyone else who doesn't have what you have. If you have a few material possessions, that's okay. That is not a reflection of God's love towards you. That is where God just has you right now. Where he has to teach you and grow you and show more of himself to you. You too can be faithful in what God has given to you. Remember, Jesus said in direct connection with finances, if you are faithful in little things, you will be faithful in large ones. Not my words. If you are faithful in little things, you will be faithful in large ones. Earthly socioeconomic status means nothing. Zilch. Zip in God's eyes. Absolutely nothing. Just as those of a higher status must not look down on those of a lower status, you must not hold anything against your brothers and sisters of a higher status. God has work for them to do with what he has given to them, and God has work for you to do with what he has given to you. It's all up to him. There's a peace that comes with that. You know why? Because you know he will provide everything you need as you seek his kingdom first, above all else. Again, we are all one with no bearing on any kind of earthly status. In short, we must not allow the church, brothers and sisters, we must not allow what the world uses to grade each other, gauge each other, decide who is worthy of something or not, or to promote ourselves or demean others, or anything it uses, the world, to divide people to seep into the church, to spill over into the church. We are Jesus' precious body that he bought with an impossibly high price. His own blood, and not just his blood, but an excruciatingly tortuous death on a Roman perfected instrument of torture called the cross. The Romans did not invent it, but they sure perfected it. Imagine perfecting an instrument of torture and death. Jesus loved us so much that he willingly went to that death, knowing he would rise three days later. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, the church, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present 
her to himself as a glorious church without a spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. That is inspiring. Amen? Jesus gave up his life for the church with everyone who would make it up to present himself to himself as a glorious church, holy and with no fault. He has given us a mission, a co-mission, to take the hope of his gospel known to this divided world as one body, working and praying as one. There's power in that. There is power in that. Think about it. Think of how that will look to a world racked with division, hatred, and anger. You don't have to go very far to see that, do you? Pull up your Facebook page. There it is, all right there for you to see. Everything everybody's angry about. That light and that witness for unity is one of the purposes God created the church to be towards the world. That light of unity. That unwavering unity will draw those trapped in the darkness of hate and division to the love and unity and truth of Jesus. It will draw them. But we have to show it. We have to show it. Paul is laying the foundation here for what he will get into in the next chapter. This is the roots, though, right here. These are the roots. That there be no division for any reason and that we continue to move forward as one body. We'll get into this in the near future, but for now, this is what I want to end our time with this morning. The human body has many parts. But the many parts make up one whole body. So it is with the body of Christ. Some of us are Jews, some of us are Gentiles. There's the, 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 the racial component come in there. But we're all one. Some are slaves and some are free. There's a socioeconomic component pulled in there. But we're all one. But we have all been baptized into one body by one spirit. And we all share the same spirit. Let those words sink in. Soak those words up. In closing, we are all loved by one God. We all have one spirit. We are one family. And we have one mission. So let's do that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage in 1 Corinthians. That this problem the Corinthian church had, may it never be one that we must deal with. Lord, I pray that we would continue together as one, taking the, that light of the unity of the body of Christ to the darkness of this divided and angry world. Lord, I pray we would take the peace of the gospel to this world, the hope of this gospel to this world, to say, listen, there is more than this. There is more than this division and hatred and anger. Let me show you what it is. It's Jesus he can save you from all of this. He can save you from your own sin. He can reconcile you to the creator of the universe and you can have peace. You can have joy. You can be a part of one united family. Let us go forth with that message. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.